1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection.
2: I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to "Let's Be Real" with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HouseStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen, and I'm Caroline. And Caroline, we've talked about hair a number of times on Stuff Mom Never Told You, covering things like the significance of women's hair and length, what happens when women cut their hair short and the kind of associations with that. We've talked about graying hair. And now we're going to look at the places that we often go to get our hair cut Because when you look into beauty parlors and barbershops or whatever you want to call your hair cuttery, there are so many aspects of gender, culture,
2: ethnicity, a lot of stuff tied up in these places. Yeah, this uh, reading about this topic actually got me thinking about where I have gotten my hair cut the past several years, various different salons, and it's usually been all women. The salon I go to now, there are a couple of men, um, but it's always been mostly white as well. Yeah, I have a feeling that if most
3: listeners think about where they go get their hair cut, if they're a guy, they're probably going to a place with a lot of other men. Uh, a lot of times we go to get our hair cut at places filled with people who look a lot like us. I think that's the simplest way to put it, which is a little weird when you think about it because... It's hair. It's just human hair. So why do we need these kinds of segregated spaces? Uh, but before we get into hair salons, beauty parlors, barbershops today, let's go, as we often do, back in history, because, not surprisingly, because humans have always had these pesky heads of hair, we've always wanted and had people to cut our hair, fix our hair, Make it look nice. Well,
2: that is if you're rich. Right. In ancient Rome, going back to the days of ancient Roman hair, hairdressing was performed by slaves and former slaves. And so this kind of ties into hairdressing historically being seen as a lower status form of labor. Yeah, this is also something that's referred
3: to as body work. If you go to a hair salon, if you go get a manicure, pedicure, if you go get a massage, it's these kinds of services uh, focused on working on our bodies. And in ancient Rome though, that kind of bodywork, the hairdressing that happened was no simple task because it was almost like hair sewing because they used needles and thread to stitch together those intricate designs that you'll see in artwork or in sculpture and this was discovered actually by a hairdresser turned academic Janet Stevens, who wrote this groundbreaking paper called Ancient Roman Hairdressing on hairpins and needles. And it sent shockwaves through academia because she, in her spare time, studied all of these primary sources looking at Roman women's hair and Figuring out what kind of tools they had at the time. And I don't want to go too much off into this tangent, but it was fascinating to see how they literally wove women's hair together.
2: Yeah. And the study included pictures of hair dummies, you know, just heads with, with hair for, for styling purposes, you know, using these dummies to illustrate how one would go about creating these Roman hairstyles, which was cool and kind of creepy. All at the same time, because not all of the hair dummies had eyes. Yeah, some of the
3: decapitated dummy heads were eyeless. <laughs> but thankfully, once you looked at the, the intricate braiding that was done, the weaving, <laughs> it distracted from the potentially terrifying faces. Um, but since ancient times, like in Rome, this is also verified in ancient Greece. And even if you look into biblical texts, for instance, Hair has long been an integral part of gender performance, as we've touched on in those other hair podcasts. Uh, For instance, men's long hair for a long time symbolized strength, political
2: power and youth, which is interesting because today most dudes have short hair. Right. I mean, think about Samson. And for women, hair denotes fertility and sexuality. But one of the sources we were reading was talking about how basically women had a very short period of even being able to display this i don't fertile, sexy hair. yeah, you know, it was like between the time of of growing up and being a young girl to right before you got married. And then it was that hair went right back up because you were somebody's missus.
3: Yeah, I mean, for men and women alike, the way that we wear our hair has been so scripted mm-hmm. for so long. Um, But if you move over to West Africa, for instance, this is really interesting. The hairdresser's roles in a lot of societies has long been praised because there are beliefs, for instance, about people's spirits being embodied in their hair, as well as traditions of braiding and hair design that symbolize milestones in people's lives, like coming of age, marriage. And I mean, you mentioned, Caroline, that uh, in ancient Rome, ancient Greece, women had that brief window of time. And yet the person who was fixing all the hair was looked down upon. But if you look more into African cultures, they seem to take more pride in the artistry of hair. And then if you fast forward to the 18th and 19th century in the United States, you see those cultures colliding.
2: But moving from looking at women's hair and sexy hair to men's sexy hair, let's talk about beards for a moment. Where do we get the word barber? It comes from the Latin word for beard. Beard. And barber shops were common in Greece around 420 BC and in Rome in 299 BC. And fun tidbit about the barber pole, the red and white pole symbolizes bloodletting and bandages because barbers were employed for periodic ritual bloodletting after a papal decree forbade clergy and monks from bloodletting. And so, you know, you'd, you'd, no big deal. You'd just be a barber surgeon.
3: Yeah. And I'm sure that guys going to the barber today would, would love to think about, oh, bloodletting. That's what that's what this this poll means. Okay, I'm not nervous at all about the <laughs> shave I'm about to get. Um, but but that is interesting though to note that barber shops do predate the beauty shop. Probably the the women's hair would be done at home. Um, and a lot of this also is coming from the paper called "Working on Hair" by Helene M. Lawson. And Lawson notes that by 1400, London barbers formed the London Company of Barbers Guild. And even by this point, the social function of the barber was as a news deliverer and an advisor, similar to how we think of the function of the beauty shop, the the hair salon today, where there is often lots of exchange of news, gossip, advice giving, etc. But it started out, though, with the barber,
2: yeah, and, and, you know, all this talk about barber meaning beard and, and this being a man's space. It's not that there weren't women there. There were women barbers even way back then, but they were by no means the majority and they were by no
1: means the boss.
3: Yeah, they would not have been owning the barber shop. Um, but we should note too that Gillette's mass production of a safety razor in 1903 did threaten barber shop Business, but industry-wide, men were considered the real minds and the scientific innovators when it came from the expansion of the barber shop into the beauty shop and just hairstyling as a whole. And, and they were often called beauty culturalists, side note. And they would unionize, kind of like those London barbers did in 1400. But those unions were led mostly by men. And often when they were talked about in trade publications and in the media, it was usually dudes cutting hair who got most of the attention.
2: And it was these um, men in these beauty culturalist unions who did, uh, around the first half of the 20th century, seek to regulate the industry. Basically, they wanted to ensure that men, whether they were styling women's hair or men's hair, were earning a breadwinner wage. That was the objective. And so... During the first half of the 20th century, they wanted to make sure that they regulated it and regulated the industry, I should say, in such a way that it became a respected profession, kind of tidied up a bit so that there were rules and regulations as far as hours go. Safety, you know, all of this stuff that we think of as positives. That's good, right? There should be rules and regulations for safety. But around this time, what that basically did was kind of screwed over the smaller female-run hair care businesses. And I say hair care businesses, but I mean, that could be anything from something run on a woman's front porch to a factory latrine, basically. And so um these unions, these men in these unions, were essentially trying to distance the work from, quote-unquote, women's work and exclude, another quote, irregular practitioners. Oh, no. Well,
3: perhaps they were feeling like the previously male-dominated industry was being infiltrated by women all of a sudden because... Women's hairdressing really started out as an at-home operation. It was almost like a cottage industry that some women would have. And in the late 19th and early 20th century, women were converting their kitchens, bathrooms, and porches into beauty parlors, which really fostered some entrepreneurialism among domestic workers and farm girls. This was an opportunity for women who didn't have a lot of means to start their own businesses and to really make something of themselves. Um, and at the turn of the century, there were only a few salons that did cater to women. It's still the days of the barber shop and mostly it was wealthy women who would leave the house to go get their hair done. Although we should note that hairdressing services rarely included cutting because women tended to wear their hair long. You would go there instead to just get it washed and detangled, oiled, etc. All that fancy stuff
2: put up into a fancy pretzel-looking thing.
3: Yes, to get hmm. your pretzel hair done. Yes. <laughs> but the thing is, though, people thought that it would be a fad, women going to get their hair done, Men going to barber shops, okay, sure, but <laughs> at the, the beginning of the 20th century, oh my goodness, no, why would, why would women do that? But then things really changed within the industry, and this again might have prompted more of the unionization efforts that were going on led by uh, male hairdressers or barbers, because with the invention of the bob haircut and the permanent wave, all of a sudden, women were going to salons, they were going to barbershops, they were going any place they could to get their hair
2: done. Yeah, it's funny to read accounts from that time of men who were like pouting, you know, because they couldn't get a seat in the barbershop because all these, all of these randy women were in there getting their hair cut off. This is pre-World War I and, um, barbershops were struggling to keep up with all of this demand and it was great because it was good for business, but it was weird because it was women.
1: So, you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free zone. The
0: all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime.
3: Yeah, uh, one academic describes it as the struggle over the nature of public space and the increasing desire among women to have their own homosocial space, which contributed to the dramatic growth of the women's hairdressing industry. Um, and speaking though, again, of men in the, in the industry, it was German hairdresser Charles Nessler, who is hailed as the inventor of the permanent wave machine, whom Time magazine called a revolutionist who transformed women's way of life. Because with the permanent wave, you go in, you get your hair waved, and done. You don't have to think about fixing your hair painstakingly every day. And it actually is a bit of a time saver. Um, but like you said, Caroline, some men were pretty disgruntled about women arriving at the barbershop to sometimes get their hair bobbed. There was a 1925 verse, actually, that was published in the New Zealand Freelance. So this was not just in the United States. This is from the New Zealand Freelance. And it went... Says the poor Harry bachelor, barber, B-O-B-B-E-R, shop is the right word now. I can't get shaved. I'm in despair. There's a girl in every barber's chair. Oh,
2: how terrible. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was. Obviously, the popularity was getting out of control. I mean, in 1920, there were 5,000 beauty shops registered. Not barber shops, but beauty shops. It wasn't a huge thing. It, and this is in the U.S. But by 1930, that had skyrocketed to 40,000. So... I mean, those changing times, the new technology of having the the permanent along with the new style of the bob. I mean, women were going in droves. Yeah. And there was also a fad of
3: bleached blonde hair, uh, which we might not think about as happening before World War 1 we think of the blonde bombshell as more of a World War 2 era kind of lady but that was happening at the same time which also fed that beauty shop industry but in 1932 the debut of the at-home perm meant that less wealthy women could also experiment with styling. So the bobbing and the waving and the bleaching, uh, it was happening, yes, a lot at these uh, barbershops, at new salons, but it was still happening at home. There was still a big grassroots aspect to hairdressing.
2: Yeah. And so by the end of World War I, hairdressing was seen as a respectable middle class woman's occupation and the beauty industry was sustained during the Great Depression as well, thanks to products that could only be purchased in salons, which in the year 2013, I'm just going to go ahead and say is infuriating. I'm glad that these salons made it through the Great Depression and everything, but I can't tell you how annoying it is to have to go to a salon to buy my shampoo. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. Like I don't buy all my shampoo at a salon. I'm not like a total press like, Well, it's just expensive. But well, it's expensive, and I, I, you know, would like to be able to get it at the grocery store. (laughs)
3: But hey, that's—I mean—that's part of why, though, the hairdressing industry is as robust
2: as it is today. They suckered us in, Caroline. I know, and now we're just stuck. Well, so if you look at the amount of women going to beauty shops in 1948, 37.5 percent of women went to beauty shops. That uh, that increased in 1953 to 52 percent. That's not that long of a time.
3: Yeah. 52 percent. It, it went up really quickly. Uh, but there's something about this history of hairdressing in the United States that we have to point out. And that is that what we've talked about so far is really just about white men and women. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned at the top of the podcast, Caroline, that a lot of the places that you go, you've noticed it's, you know, it's you, it's other women and generally other white women. And I think that's pretty common. Uh, Same for me because it's something that we might not think about that often, but not only are beauty shops, hair salons, highly gendered spaces, they're also highly segregated spaces, and that's even in 2013. But we have to go back and and way back. We have to talk about some of the uglier history in the United States that leads us up to today and how also the black beauty shops are going to become these real powerhouses for the civil rights movement. Um, but touching quickly on the importance of, of hair in African society, because we talked about how in ancient Greece, ancient Rome, hairdressing was always considered this lower status occupation. It was something that the slaves did. But if you go to someplace like West Africa, the hairdresser's role in many societies has long been a really honored one because of beliefs about people's spirits being embodied in their hair or simply because of time-honored traditions dealing with uh, braiding and hair design that represent milestones in people's lives.
2: And I think those different attitudes toward hair came with people from West Africa when they came to America as slaves. And Slave owners, as we look back, would attempt to humiliate and dehumanize their slaves by shaving their heads and referring to their hair in animalistic descriptions, calling them things like wool. Hair was a symbol of pride, strength and invincibility, and often it would suffer. Often the hair would be removed.
3: Yeah, Julie A. Willett talks about this in her book, Permanent Waves, The Making of the American Beauty Shop. And she mentions how female slaves working in the fields might wrap and thread their hair with cotton and cover it with a bandana. Not unlike the effect of sitting under a dryer. There was still that kind of hairstyling that was going on. And slaves also commonly served as slave owners, barbers and hairdressers, harkening back to those ancient Roman days where it's the slave's job to make the master presentable. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it, when you consider how loaded the, the slave's hair was to the masters, where it would be cut as punishment, where people would often be ridiculed for having non-white hair, it's a, it's a strange relationship when you start to think about that.
2: Yeah. And I mean, speaking of strange and evolving relationships up until about the 1820s, black men were the prominent hairdressers for women. But that quickly changed when social attitudes started changing toward not only black men, but the views of black men interacting with white women. And suddenly that was seen as unsafe. It was not a good idea. And so those racist fears ended up leading to black men being barred from providing that service.
3: Yeah. In Atlanta, actually, uh, they passed a city ordinance that white women couldn't go to a black male barber because of those racist fears. And even after the Civil War, when we have the, the slaves who were freed moving up north, they were often still hairdressers to wealthier white clientele which, again, these were arrangements that uncomfortably harkened back to that indentured domestic work. And a similar color line was drawn with black barbers as well. It's like they're doing similar jobs that they were doing back in the days when they were enslaved. And gradually the, the beauty industry really segregated itself. And by the 1920s and 30s, it was already rare to see an African-American woman hairdressing a white woman.
2: Yeah, and it's also interesting, you know, we talked about unions uh, a little bit ago and how they were trying to basically root out women and quote-unquote irregular practitioners in this beauty industry. And in the mid-20th century, the industry was looking to expand, and that's when lines started to get blurred. And there is that rise of more men and women getting their hair cut in the same places. Those color lines were pretty deep, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also embedded
3: with that is the good hair versus bad hair complex that also serves to further segregate white salons versus black salons because there have even been court cases where a white person working at a salon will refuse to cut a black woman's hair because she says she just doesn't know how to cut black hair, in quotes. Um, and Jennifer Scanlon, who did some research on the representation of beauty parlors in film, says, quote, The beauty parlor plays a role in demarcating difference and imposing disciplinary practices that enforce racism through beauty standards bell hooks and others however remember the beauty parlor not as a discipline in whiteness but as an important ritual and an instruction in womanhood
2: and another thing that hooks was saying about those trips to the salon those ritualized trips to the salon is that you know even though we shouldn't fall prey to a the male gaze or b you know what society tells us we should look like black or white it is sort of a Part of womanhood uh, about growing up and and not being able to escape those images and not being able to or necessarily even wanting to escape the desire to feel pretty.
3: Mm -hmm. But then when you add on to that, though, considering this uh, judgment purely based on the texture of your hair, how that must add another layer of complexity, though, to that instruction in, quote unquote, womanhood and what might be acceptable womanhood, because it's such a lie, really, that there is good hair versus bad hair. This is something that uh, Constance Dion Russell points out in a paper she wrote for the Harvard Black Letter Law Journal in 2008. She says, actually, Black hair can be curly, wavy, long, short, straight, textured, fine, thick, medium, coarse, oily, dry, or a combination of characteristics. Generally, there are 15 to 20 different types of hair on black women with a number of different types on one head. There is no standard type of black hair.
2: Yeah, and she cited studies talking about how there's typically more differences within a group than across groups. And so Going to a salon and being told, oh, we don't do that type of hair is actually a bunch of bull honky. Right. But so kind of um, amidst all of these um, racist attitudes and the deep lines of segregation drawn between white hair salons and beauty parlors and black hair salons and beauty parlors. You have women who were striking out on their own with the support of the black salons behind them. Yeah, the,
3: the black beauty industry really starts out in the 1910s as a door to door cottage industry. Not unlike how hairdressing in general really started out as a cottage industry in women's bathrooms on their front porches and their kitchens. Um, and there are two names that we have to call out. Madam CJ Walker and Annie Turnbow Malone. And Walker built up this beauty industry after working for 18 years as a laundress and a widowed single mother. And she developed something called the Walker hair care system and became one of the most successful women, not black women, just women in general in the United States in the early 1900s.
2: Yeah, she employed 2000 to 10,000 Walker agents and started up Walker schools for training Um, and it's interesting to read about the product she created because they really had mass appeal. This wasn't just a thing that was just for black women. This was something that anybody would, who was looking for cleaner, healthier hair was drawn to. And so becoming a beauty cultural, culturalist, excuse me, alongside Madam C.J. Walker, it was a significant opportunity for black women who otherwise found few jobs outside of domestic work. Yeah, in
3: 1930, just uh, to put it in some perspective, clerical and sales jobs accounted for one-third of all white women's employment and only 1% of African American women's paid labor. So Walker really did open up a lot of valuable opportunities. Although she is sometimes criticized in her hair care system is criticized for it being, for emphasizing straight hair and maybe emulating more of what we would consider Euro or Caucasian hair. But you can't deny that she was very much committed to civil rights as
2: well. Right, yeah, she was actually an organizer. After the St. Louis race riot of 1917, uh, Walker and some of her agents galvanized 10,000 black New Yorkers in the Negro silent protest parade petitioning. Okay,
0: so a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair.
1: I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something...
0: He constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With Geico, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with Geico. It's almost better than sports.
2: The White House to make lynching and mob violence a crime. And this is a theme that we will get into here in a minute that we see throughout uh, black beauty parlors.
3: Yeah, and we just have to quickly mention, too, Walker's protege, Annie Turnbow Malone, whose beauty gospel was also sort of what's called by one academic a racial culture. She really focused on promoting clean hair, clean bodies to audiences because it would then foster better appearance, more business opportunities, higher social standing. What Turnbow was doing was not just selling a product – but selling a hand up in a way. I mean, talk
2: about politics within appearance.
3: Yeah. Well, and then if we move into the civil rights movement of the 1960s, those kinds of racial equality politics were absolutely intertwined with the beauty shop culture. This is something that Tiffany Gill, who's an associate professor of history and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, she is the author of the book Beauty Shop Politics, African-American Women's Activism in the Beauty Industry, in which she uncovers this fascinating relationship between those black owned beauty shops and civil rights organizing.
2: Yeah, the black-owned beauty shops really gave women the perfect platforms for political activism because they didn't risk employment in the process. They weren't working for a white woman as a, you know, a, a domestic servant in their home. These women were running and working in their own beauty shops and... In a lot of the sources that we looked at, you know, it wasn't just in these um, black owned beauty shops. It was in woman run beauty shops as well. And it kind of in general, as far as like, oh, well, we don't have to be worried about them. You know, they're just women or in this case, they're just black women. You know, what's the danger in letting people gather and talk? And so, you know, having beauty shops be overlooked as sort of an innocuous gathering space actually allowed a lot of political and social conversations, crucial social conversations to occur. Yeah, and
3: especially to occur among those women. Because another uh, example that she pointed out was that it wasn't just at a church that would probably have a male preacher. So you would then have sort of the the male oversight. It was really important that these women were talking to other women. And Gil says that the beauty industry was central in the political lives of black women. And there were also black beauty organizations like the National Beauty Culturist League and the United Beauty School Owners and Teachers Associations that lent even more credibility to the perceptions of black professionals as well. So even within the community with their roles as civil rights organizers and the respect that they garnered from that and then professionally from a from a trade standpoint, you have these professional organizations also giving them uh, more credibility, right? And it becomes a, a really important cornerstone of
2: these women's lives mm-hmm. and
3: their career potential,
2: right? Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting to to talk about that division as far as gender and race goes, because I mean these were spaces for women that you could get away from men and the domineering male forces in your life, and talk about anything from the silly stuff in your life to the more serious. And in looking at the divisions between black and white spaces, black owned beauty shops that allowed black women to help one another. I mean, I think it was Gil that talked about how even today, a lot of black owned beauty shops are still sources of health information to the community.
3: Yeah, there is an example of uh, one woman who owns a, a beauty shop who does a lot in terms of HIV education, mm-hmm. like yeah. safe sex kinds of things. Um, but yeah, it's absolutely still going on today. Although it's, we don't have that much more to say about beauty shops because the history is already so fraught with so many issues. And I feel like it's not that much different today. I feel like it's still very segregated. It's not very talked about. And... We just kind of let it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also uh, socioeconomically uh, this trend where y- you're either having unisex chain, very inexpensive salons or barbershops pop up versus
2: the higher and higher end salons. Right. And I think I mean, I read one stat that said that that's been a trend since the 1960s. That total divergence, the, the low price unisex chain or the high end expensive salons. And at the same time, you have the humongous, deep, steep decline of the barbershops.
3: Well, and I wonder then if maybe our, it's, like, we've replaced those racist undertones with classist undertones where it's not so much, uh, the focus on keeping black and white people separate, but more keeping you know, going in for a high-end
2: experience, that kind of thing. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I mean, well, some of the men interviewed in in some of this research were talking about going to barbershops and how, you know, they talked to some men who wished they could still be going to a barber, but that just wasn't a service that was available to them anymore for some reason or another. But they didn't want to go to a high-end salon and shell out, 60 bucks, nor did they want to go to the unisex shop in the mall and, and not know the person cutting their hair. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just wondering also if the decline in barbershops has to do with cultural norms as far as like, well, you're a dude. You're not supposed to care about that. Oh
3: yeah. There is so much masculinity stuff tied up into barbershops. So we didn't really even have time to go into in Helene Lawson's paper working on hair. She spent some time. In barbershops was just talking about how the conversations that you overhear in barbershops are so markedly different from what you hear in salons. And a right. lot of it is uh, homophobic or just about men's things. And granted, though, she was looking at a very specific geographic area, which you probably wouldn't hear the same kinds of things if you were to walk into, say, a Manhattan men's salon, but it's it's fascinating once you really start thinking about those spaces.
2: Yeah, because, I mean, as Lawson was saying, there's a lot of, on both the part of the client and the hairstylist, there's a lot of kind of concern for identity management. And so that makes me wonder, like, are we ever going to cross these boundaries? Are the lines between black, white, male, female, Personal spaces going to be erased when it comes to body work. Yeah, and that identity
3: management really hit home with me as I was researching this because I remembered going to my mom's salon to get my hair cut for the first time. And it was one of the first places that I really remember thinking about my appearance and my attractiveness because the barber, it was a guy who would cut my hair. And he would always, you know, call me princess. Oh, you're so pretty. Oh, pretty princess. (laughs) And I loved it It because it was like the first time I had been like directly praised outside of the home for being a a cute little girl. And yeah, I was like,
2: whoa. So that must be weird that I call you princess all the time. It is a little weird. I should stop. But I, you know, I don't mind. But no, I, I really, it's like the gendering goes all the way back that far. Yeah. No, I remember going with my dad to get his haircut and it was not he did not go to a barbershop. He went to a salon. Um, But, you know, side note, I was very, very little. I was maybe three years old and I looked out the window and the hair salon was like slightly elevated from other buildings. And I could see like the exhaust from some fan somewhere. And I ran out of the salon screaming that the building was on fire small little things we remember. So from you
3: weren't thinking about what a pretty little princess you
2: were. Now, I don't even remember. I think my mom took me to Great Clips, which was fi- literally, I mean, until I was about 12. And that was fine until I went in and this woman grabbed my bangs in the middle of my forehead with one fist and then just chopped across. And so they they were all zigzaggy and I was terrified. And that's when I started going to a grown up lady salon.
3: The salon is so,
2: so strange
3: to think about this. I mean, and it's
2: gonna, I'm gonna, and you know what, Caroline? Mm. I'm gonna think
3: about all this stuff every time I go get my hair cut now.
2: And know. Well, it actually, I mean, not to keep rattling on, I mean, it made me think about my mom's hair salon that she went to because it was run by a man and people from Atlanta might recognize the name Bob Steele, but my mom actually went to high school with Bob Steele and he started a salon in Atlanta. And it, I think there's like three or four locations now. And so she had her hair cut by a dude in Atlanta, and then I did too when I went there. Well, there you go. Okay. There, you trailblazer. Summing up nothing. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so if we have any hairstylists, barbers, beauty shop attendees <laughs> listening, we want to hear from you. What do you think about this fraught history of hairdressing in the United States? Um, there's There's a lot in here. Let us know your thoughts, com. You can tweet us at momstuffpodcast, and you can also message us on Facebook. And we have a couple of letters to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now, back to our letters. Well, I have a letter here from Elizabeth in response to our science podcast. She said, I listened to the science podcast while doing basic science research in a lab at a medical university, actually using pipettes and flasks to do a tissue culture. I'm working towards a PhD in cell biology. And when people find out where I go to school, they assume I'm studying to be a nurse. And when I say no, their eyes usually widen and they ask if I'm in med school. When I tell them I'm studying to become a scientist, the usual responses are, good for you. As a woman, wow. Or I was never good at science. In recent years, I've been asked about the show, (laughs) The Big Bang Theory, occasionally. All in all, the general public lacks an understanding of what scientists do, and people are sometimes even intimidated when they find out that I work in science. One thing I'd like people to understand is that scientists were probably not the cool kids in school. Many were and are nerdy and often feel awkward, if not outright anxious, in social situations. We spend most of our time in the lab interacting with the same handful of people every day. Be nice to us, say hello, and please do not let the mere mention of science intimidate you. Trust me, when I'm out on my own time, the last thing I want to talk about is science. And I'll never think you're stupid for not being quote-unquote good at science. What I have in scientific ability, I lack in social grace, and since I've spent much of my adult life being a science nerd, there are many, many things about which I know next to nothing. Your podcast helps me pass the hours of sometimes monotonous work in the lab, and thank you.
2: Well, I have a letter here from Ellen. She is a female software engineer and would like to share her experiences. She says, I fortunately have not encountered the bro grammar archetype too much in my workplace. I agree 100% that it's far more prevalent in the startup community. I work at a large, well-known corporation. When I go to conferences, meetups, and workshops, I am usually either the only woman there or one of a handful. I do find that male developers at these events are very interested in talking to me. Most of the feedback I've gotten has been positive. These men will say how cool it is to have a woman participating and getting involved in the community. I did have an instructor keep commenting on my looks in one workshop I was in. It was meant to be complimentary, but all it did was make me feel even more separate and isolated from the men in the room. I did work on an all-male team once and felt like I constantly had to prove that I wasn't going to go to HR every time someone cracked a joke. The pressure to prove that I could be one of the guys on that team felt overwhelming to me, even though it was pressure that mostly came from myself. I'm extremely fortunate to work on a team with several female developers. The lead tech on our team is a woman and is actually seen as one of the most valuable assets in the company. I've been very lucky to have such a smart, competent, and assertive woman as a mentor. Thanks so much for all you do. And thanks for what you do, Ellen, and thank you for writing in. We really appreciate everybody sharing their stories because we want to get the word out about how many amazing opportunities there are out there for ladies like you. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Keep your women in STEM letters coming to us. discovery.com is where you can send your emails. You can also message us on Facebook. Tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. And you can also, for fun, follow us on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou. And, of course, you should head over to our YouTube channel. It's YouTube.com slash StuffMomNeverToldYou. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your computer, tablet, mobile device, or gaming console.
2: Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to netflix.com mom and sign up now.
1: So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair, but Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is and it's sulfate, paraben, dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought
0: to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction.
1: And Rotten Tomatoes rates it
0: 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC.
1: The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.